Well, for the last minute or so, my presence was for the most part hidden from you. Perhaps you saw a little bit of me. You knew I had to be there. But experientially, audibly, invisibly, I was hidden. And that's because you all sat by and allowed a mountain of a man to greatly diminish the sense of my presence. As a result, you may have heard a few words, perhaps enough to piece together a sentence, but there's no way you heard everything. And you likely missed some precious gospel words and interesting information. I mentioned that there was a $5 bill in this church somewhere. Did anybody pick up where that is? I also mentioned that there's a Hershey bar hidden somewhere down in the kitchen. Did anyone hear that? I read from Colossians chapter 3. Did you catch any of that? Maybe a little bit? Well, I kind of blended all those elements together. Do you suppose that our relationship to God is a good bit like that? Quite often. It's likely that our consciousness of God's presence is diminished by our attention to other things that distract and or attract us. No doubt some of you thought it was odd that Mike cut in front of me and competed for your attention. You didn't quite know what to do about it. Our struggle to attend to the presence of God works out that way too. We know the things that distract our efforts to acknowledge God's presence. We know the ways that we deliberately distract ourselves from God's presence. And we can get stuck there. Well, the 23rd Psalm is King David practicing the presence of God. Reviewing it, retelling it, celebrating it. And he reflects on the provision and the protection and the promise of the shepherd who is always present with him. Now, David knows a lot about shepherding. He uses a lot of metaphors here in the 23rd Psalm, as in other, th- other Psalms, uh, from his daily experience as a shepherd with his flock. And like any good shepherd, he knows that happy sheep are sheep that are aware of the shepherd. For those sheep, the voice of the good shepherd is their comfort and confidence. And he describes... Life in the kingdom of God as if a sheep could tell it. I almost titled the sermon, If Sheep Could Talk. If they could, they would say what David is saying about God. And my goal in preaching this sermon is to draw us into practicing the presence of God. This is the essence of discipleship to Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God among us. So let's think through why we should practice the presence of God and then glean from the 23rd Psalm as a paradigm or pattern for how we can practice the presence of God. I'll read that Psalm first. Um, I think it's up there in the King James, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restoreth my soul. He causeth me to walk in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. First, we need to be clear about what it means to practice the presence of God. That may be odd to you. There actually was a 16th century monk who stole the title of my sermon for a book he wrote called The Practice of the Presence of God, known as Brother Lawrence. Uh, But it's really nothing more than to be intentionally aware of God's presence. To be intentionally aware of God's presence. To the degree that we do, we will know the hope and the strength and the comfort and care that God gives to the extent that we are intentionally aware of his presence. And we will testify to the promise God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. God, indeed, Himself, is our exceeding great reward. So why should we practice the presence of God? Why should we be intentional about our awareness of the presence? Because God exists. Not to oversimplify things. Because God exists. God is the greatest possible being. God is so great that we can't imagine anything greater. Now, I'm going to assume that you believe God exists. Regardless of how you presently think about God, you admit that He exists. And I don't have the time in the sermon to argue for God's existence with any among us that deny God's existence other than to say, I hope you will seek me out to discuss that carefully. Now, when someone of notoriety or greatness comes into we do things that could be described as practicing their presence. We act and demonstrate we are aware of their presence. We want to get close to them. We want to say hello or just shake a hand. We get excited. To not practice the presence of gravity has ligament-tearing, bone-breaking, potentially catastrophic consequences to human life. The Apostle Paul, quoting a pagan poet while speaking to pagans, said, In God we live and move and have our being. To not practice the presence of such a being is madness with actual catastrophic consequences. We have all at some time lived that way. Some of us live that way now. We should practice the presence of God because God exists. Second, to do so satisfies a fundamental human urge. The craving for God's presence is wired into humans. Every religion engages some cultic ritual or ceremony whereby the religious seeker hopes to encounter God in a very present way. Twelve-step programs for drug and alcohol recovery have, as their eleventh step, quote, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. As we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will and the power to carry out. Well, that's potent, isn't it? 
to improve our conscious contact with God. Roman Catholicism holds that Jesus is present in flesh and blood in the Eucharist. Protestants have a range of views on the special presence of Jesus in the elements. But truth is, God is omnipresent. He is fully present anywhere He is present. He cannot be more present. However, humans have the capacity to harness increased awareness of God's presence. Salvation makes that capacity actual in its fullest degree, and we'll look at that a little more. Scripture gives us many examples of this hardwiring, this urge to know God's presence, which is to know God. Exodus chapter 33. I'll read verses 13 through 18. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Moses speaking, please show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. The redeemed mind and soul seek the glorious presence of God. The psalmist wrote, Cast me not from your presence. And in your presence is fullness of joy. God said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus said to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always. And he told the eleven, I will not leave you orphans. I will send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. Among other things, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, functioned as a sort of musical immersion into a virtual temple experience for the Israelites in exile. See, the temple was, of course, where the presence of God was singularly located in Israelite theology and practice. And the temple was designed to, by God to exquisitely detail things. It turned out Many of the things that would have been found in the Garden of Eden, the sacred space of God that man had been exiled from, God wanted copied into the temple. So for those in exile, the Psalms reminded them of provoking the emotions and hopes that the temple stood for, which is the presence of God. Now folks, the presence of God is so critical to our fulfillment as human beings. Not our being, but our fulfillment as human beings, that to be without God's presence is hell itself. Speaking of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, quote, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed. 
How can we practice the presence of God then? Let's harvest some things from the 23rd Psalm. In the Psalm, David is expressing his own sense of marvel. And to marvel is to be filled with wonder and astonishment. To marvel at God is to practice the presence of God. The Psalm begins and ends with Yahweh. Likely this Psalm was written near the end of David's life. And he's looking back in quiet repose at his pilgrimage with God. Realizing that never once did he ever walk alone. I imagine David thinking about his shepherding days and thinking, wow, I was a shepherd. But Yahweh is my shepherd. In his book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, from which I'll quote a few more times, Philip Keller wrote, Sheep require more than any other class of livestock, endless and meticulous care. But David could amend that about himself. I think we should be able to too. We don't. We don't. Jesus said to his disciples, without me you can do nothing. Jesus is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. I belong to Him, David says. He, he has mocked me. Some of you, like my family, have seen the Pexar movie series, The Toy Story, at least once. And it's an animated story about toys who talk and have relationships like humans when humans aren't around. In the first movie then, so two of the main characters, Woody and Buzz Lightyear, are being held captive by the evil Sid. Now, Sid is this monster of a ten-year-old real human boy who lives next door. And his bedroom is a fallen world of toys that are not what they once were. There's a doll's head that's been placed on top of erector-set motorized legs. A jack-in-the-box has been torn out and another doll's hands attached to it. A car has its wheel removed and in its place are hands and arms from another toy. And there's a, a duck's head on a male doll's body. There's a set of Barbie doll legs that have been attached to the reel of a plastic fishing pole. But what a picture of the effects of sin in a growing creation. I could write a book about this. The hidden gospel in the Toy Story. Well, Buzz Lightyear has a rocket that's duct taped to his back and he's scheduled by Sid, the evil guy, for destruction the next day. And sort of all hope seems lost when he takes a look at the bottom of his foot and he sees the name Andy written on it. Andy is his owner. Andy lives right next door. His bedroom is in full view. And Buzz is renewed in strength and hope and the great escape and the rescue mission is set in motion. David Shepherd is the great I am, self-existent, non-contingent, most powerful and benevolent shepherd in the universe. That's why David's making such a point about Yahweh is my shepherd. Therefore, David could say, therefore, since Yahweh is his shepherd, and you need to know everything about Yahweh, you need to know everything about Jesus, and then when you know everything about Yahweh, you know everything about Jesus, and then to be able to say, he's my shepherd, then it naturally follows that I shall not want. I shall not want. Other translations read, I have everything I need. Another translation reads, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
I lack nothing. The rest of the psalm is David going off the fragrant fruit of God's presence as a result of I shall not want, as a result of the Lord Shepherd. I shall not want, and thou art with me, which we'll see in another verse, are intertwined in David's thought. I shall not want, for thou art with me. I shall not want. That's the backbone of this entire psalm. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, He who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. He who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. Do you believe that? Wow, that was a challenge. We can probably empathize with this woman. She responded in some blog somewhere. I understand the point. God is all we need, but if I had God anyway, I'd rather have God as well as a working car, reliable internet, a cell phone, lights over the sink that actually turn on, but I feel bad because I feel like I should only want God alone. And there's definitely nothing on earth I want instead of God, but I still want things too. Oh, who can't connect to that in some way? But I, Lewis' response would probably be something like, My dear madam, it is not having those things as bad. It's simply that the presence of God alone is sufficient to meet every need that you think is being met by having those things. Because there's a reason we think we have to have this. This has to be working. This has to be this. This has to be that. I've got to have this. If this happens, this. If that happens, that. Whatever we add to God subtracts from God. Whatever we add to God subtracts from God. Jesus Christ plus anything equals nothing. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. It is your heavenly Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. When God is the king. Cast all your care upon the Lord, for He cares for you. What is it that you want? What is it that you want? He knows everything about you. He will either meet your need or take away the want that you think is a need. He will take away the need, He will satisfy the need, or He will take away that thing which is a desire, which is a want, but which is not a need. And so He'll, he'll do that. That's, the whole, that's behind the whole, I shall not want because He's my shepherd. <clears throat> he knows everything about you. Are we worried about jobs and many and uh, money and, and, and many other things? Is it possible our wants will be transformed if we're conscious always of the presence of God? How might our consciousness, how might our awareness of the presence of God change our wants? Genesis 28:15-7. This is right after. Uh, this is Jacob, all excited about his dream about Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending, and God standing above all. And he says, 28, 15, 17, Behold, God says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? Because God is here. How awesome is this place? 
This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That's true anytime you realize that God is present. Anytime that we hearken to the presence of God, this is true for us. Oh, it seems so foreign. Yahweh, he says, makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, only a full, content sheep would lie down in the midst of thick, lush, green grass. You'd think you'd be up mowing, right? But a content sheep. And this, this gentleman, Keller, writes, it is significant that to be at rest, there must be a definite sense of uh, freedom from fear. Imagine what your life would be like with this. Freedom, freedom from fear, tension, aggravation, and hunger. Okay? In order for the sheep to be at rest, that sheep, this shepherd knows, has to, be, has to have a sense of freedom from fear, tension, aggravation, and hunger. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How content are we? How content are we? Are there people in your life that put you at ease just by showing up? There are. There are, there are people in our lives that we just sort of get put at ease just by them showing up. There's a calming presence that they bring. How much more God? Friends of God, do we suppose it is true enough even for us with God? Is God enough? We were saying downstairs, we don't even, you know, with all the medical advances we have, we, we, so many things that we don't even have to worry about now. Things that are taken care of. I mean, we got fans here, right? We're going to swelter through, you know, this three and a half hour sermon that I'm giving. We're going to wonder, oh, it's so hot in here. And, oh, you know, back in the days with the big white congregational churches that were similar to this, and it was sweltering hot in there. People were just pouring sweat and went on for hours, you know? Is God enough? Uh, similarly, with still waters, God leads us to the place where our thirst is safely quenched. Sheep are not safe near fast-running streams. Sheep are not safe near fast-running streams. If one was to lose its footing and fall, the heaviness created by the wool getting wet with water would easily drag a sheep down and drown it. Sheep get very heavy when they're wet, wet, wet. If we're drowning metaphorically in something, it's likely that God did not lead us to that place or to that decision. He may very well have been absent from the choices made then that are a real problem now. But God can also rescue those, rescue those from those dangers. As David continues, the good shepherd restores souls. Literally, he brings them back. He brings back from lostness. Sheep do get lost. You know, at some point, the idea came about that the shepherd would have to go out to the lost sheep and break its leg for its own good and carry it back to the flock. And this way, the wandering sheep would be kept close until the shepherd healed it and the sheep would learn about not running off. That is a myth of legalistic, independent, fundamental, fecal matter that for some unknown, unbiblical, historically undocumented reason started showing up in sermon illustrations. Because nothing could be further from the truth. Sheep that are lost typically cower behind a tree or a rock or some place of hive and they make lots of noise. Lots of scared noise. So, in, in fact, they're so scared, many of them just can't even stand up on their own two legs. Their own four legs. They're just so scared. 
So the shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders and carries it back to the fold. It's difficult for us in the church today to conceive of a symbol other than the cross by which the church connects to Jesus. That's our symbol, right? I mean, the cross is every, it's everywhere. And if you're like me, you see it everywhere, right? It's in it's the telephone poles. It's, we, we see the cross everywhere. It's on churches that don't even believe in the resurrection. It's in churches that don't believe Christ was crucified. It's in liberal churches. It's everywhere. So it's hard for us to conceive of some other symbol that sort of connected people's thoughts to the presence of God. Yet, the Good Shepherd was an equally early image that shows up in a lot of catacombs, all right, and a lot of burial places, especially in Rome, among the early Roman Christians, 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries. And that was what was most common in those catacombs, not the cross. And this makes sense. See, there was, a, there was still a lot of crucifixions taking place, so people were a little slow to sort of you know, celebrate that on walls, you know. People they knew were being crucified and dying. So... So they had this sort of parable of the lost sheep that had become so popularized and the incarnation was represented by Jesus going to find the sheep and then the shepherd carrying it back on his shoulders bearing all its weight represented the atonement. And, and, and much of the art from that early era would, would show this like disproportionately large sheep. You know, it's like larger than it would really be on the shepherd's back, the young shepherd who was supposed to be Jesus, to, to sort of represent the heavy burden of sin that Christ was carrying when he had to go out and find the lost. Our straying from the righteous path is an exercise attempting to get out of the presence of God and into something else. That's what happens when we stray. We want to get out of the presence of God into something else. We wouldn't call it that, but it's very deliberate. That's what we do. I need to get out of the presence of God to do this. I can't view that image without getting out of the presence of God first. Close the door, God. You don't want to see this. <clears throat> but we do it. In such circumstances, God makes His presence known in the process of conviction. <laughs> That's God the Holy Spirit. See, guilt is an experience of the presence of God. Guilt is God showing up in the place we thought we could get away from Him. Guilt is God showing up in the very place we thought we could get away from Him. Praise God for that. You see, repentance is not a work. It isn't having to make everything right. It isn't about getting beat up first. Repentance is, Ken Bailey simply put it, accepting God's rescue. That's accepting God's rescue. What happened, my little lamb? I wandered away from you, my good shepherd. Here, let's get you on my shoulders and I'll carry you back, little lamb. I would like that very much, my shepherd. That's repentance. We make a lot more of it than it is. Because it's just more easy to make things man-centered. Then the good shepherd leads us in paths of righteousness where we can walk the path cleared by the righteous one. A path. Think of that word. It's not just some uncharted briars and brush you're walking through. It's a, it's a path. Okay, so it's, it's been walked on before. Okay, it's not virgin wilderness. The word indicates someone has been there before you, i.e. Jesus. The way is prepared. This is the path. The saints before us have walked it. God said to the Israelites that were in Babylonian exile, among other promises about their deliverance, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, 
This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone! That's what happens when we hear God. That's what happens when the presence of God is mediated to us. Then we, then we kill the idols. Then we kill the carved thing. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And another voice they will not follow. Not for long. So God leads us in righteous paths. And why does He do this? He does it for His namesake. God is so about God because God knows that we humans need to know everything there is that we can possibly know about God. We need the fullest experience of God that we can have to be overcomers. God leads us in righteous paths for His name's sake. Shepherds had reputations based on the condition of the sheep. Man, that guy's sheep are sick. Look at him. Scrawny little things. Lousy looking wool. Grungy, nasty, matted down things. God's reputation is at stake. Remember our Old Testament reading this morning in Numbers, right? Moses said, God, if, if, we, if, you, if you kill your people in the wilderness, what are the Egyptians going to say? They're going to say that you, God, were not able to deliver your people. You were not able to bring them out of the wilderness. You were not able to rescue them, God. You, don't let that be said about you. Moses was so concerned about God's name. Why? Because Moses had encountered the I am. He had encountered the bush that wasn't consumed but was burning. Tell them, I am has sent you. The I amness of God is at stake. In other words, He does it for His good and our glory, as we like to say. And to be aware of that is to practice the presence of God. Jesus said, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. That's John 17. Ooh, learn John 17 and meditate on it. Meditate on John 17. Oh, do that. Because to do so is to practice the presence of God. Now, sometimes the path of righteousness leads directly through the valley of the shadow of death. That's why it follows right upon that, I believe. I don't think it's a separate thought. He leads us in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, even though that path leads through the valley of the shadow of death. Exodus 14 is a great example of this. God tells the Israelites, turn back, turn around, and encamp at a spot directly in path of the pursuing Egyptians. This did not strike them as a righteous path. The sea before them was chaos and danger and death and darkness. The sea was a horrifying thing in ancient thought. That was sea monsters and, and beasts and the end of the earth. The sea was a horrifying place. It was, it was fearful and untamed. And they complained, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Yet God will have them pass through that sea. It is the righteous path that the Lord intended for His intended purpose to manifest His glory. Whoever would have thought of that? I mean, we never would have thought of, oh, the sea is going to part, and I'm going to walk in between. I'm going to have these two walls of death on the side, each side of me, right? For the sheep, the valley is the path taken to the best feeding area. So the best way to get there is through the valleys, in all these different places, and whether you're in 
Lebanon, Israel, Italy. But it's also a place of predators hiding out in the shadowy rocks and crags. And it's also in a valley that's difficult to know a storm is coming until it's right on you. And of course, death itself. And Keller wrote, For the child of God, death is not an end, but merely the door into a higher and more exalted life of intimate contact with Christ. Death is but the dark valley opening into an eternity of delight with God. It is not something to fear. I think if we practice the presence of God, if we become increasingly conscious of the presence of God, with all that means our Yahweh, our Jesus, the Holy Spirit, then death will become less fearful. Keller's wife, in fact, was dying of cancer. He said, gently, we passed through the valley of death, her hand in mine. Both of us were quietly aware of Christ's presence. Jesus knows how to give us comfort in these hard places. He knows how to make his presence known to us, which is what we need most. How is it that we fear no evil? How can we possibly fear no evil? Like, we're not afraid at this time that something evil is going to happen. Maybe I'm going to fall away from God. I'm going to get so uptight. I'm going to, I'm going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to fall away from God. I, my great fear is that the name of God will be blasphemed among the Gentiles because of me. That people at work will say, boy, Jesus must be a loser for this guy to be hanging out with him. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't, I, we can fear evil in ourselves. We can fear that some evil will befall us because something so big and out of control is happening to us. It was so self-trained into having control. Thou art with me is the answer. A friend of mine, and some of you, Bob Croak, died very young of colon cancer. Now, Bob taught me how to practice the presence of God. And Bob was not a doctrinal theologian. He certainly wasn't trained or anything like that. Bob was a very simple, wonderful man God taught me how to practice the presence of God. While we were on a mission trip to Haiti, we met a group of school children. That we didn't understand them and they didn't understand us. But Bob Croke just looked at them and smiled and pointed up and said, Jesus, Jesus. Four years later, I visited Bob Croke in the hospital in one of his last days there. And I entered his room. It was at a very difficult time. Bob was restless and he was hurting and he was telling the nurse, I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get sick. And so when things settled down a bit, I went to Bob's bedside just to kiss him on the forehead and tell him that I love him. And he just softly said in my ear, Jesus, Jesus. The same way he had four years ago down in Haiti. See, and and he, he died a few weeks later, full of hope. Full of hope. The rod and staff of God are the Word and the church, empowered and communicated by God the Holy Spirit, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. It doesn't mean that things will be easy. It means there's no reason to fear because God is present. Hard circumstances do come, tough trial. Does this psalm mean we'll be delivered in every way, the way we think? No. I think the primary meaning has to be that nothing's going to take us from God's love and care. Nothing's going to so affect us that we're going to walk away from God either. Because I never want to do that. We will be delivered from that which threatens to take us away from God. Think of Romans 8. Here's another 
practice the presence of God verse for you. Paul says this, For I am persuaded, Paul chose his words, I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor rulers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Persuaded. We can enjoy the Lord's bountiful banquet even when enemies are all around us. For God has prepared and set the table. He's even there serving us. You know, sheep are often harassed by an insect called the nose fly. The nose fly. And Keller says, these little flies buzz about the sheep's head attempting to deposit their eggs on the sheep's nose. And if they're successful, the eggs will hatch in a few days to form small, slender, worm-like larvae. And they'll work their way up into the nasal passages into the sheep. And they burrow into the flesh. And there they set up an intense irritation accompanied by severe inflammation. And the sheep freak when this happens. They run around. They bang their heads against stuff. They rub up against trees. They do damage to their body just trying to get this thing... Things that agitate us into our heads that we won't let out. Oh, you control freaks! And me. Things that we won't let go. And the enemy knows what they are too, that larvae-planting, brain-feeding enemy of the soul. So... And just like the sheep, the whole flock can get upset. You know, one person can really upset old things. Fears, anxieties, doubts, annoying people. Aren't annoying people to us a little bit like that? No, you're not sitting next to any of them. I, how the little things can upset us. Doesn't it seem like the big things don't upset us as much about the little things? It's like we know we can't control some of the big things, so we're in a good place, right? When you, when you know you can't control something, you, in a way you're in a good place. But with the little things, we almost get thinking, you know, we live with the illusion that we should be able to control the small things, and so we get nuts. You know? For if we think we're in control, we have given up the presence of God at that moment. At the very moment we think we're in control, we have, we have walked away from the presence of God. If I see a bear in the yard, I don't get freaked, I just give way, let him have his space and, 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 and do what bears do. But if I'm out running and a horsefly starts circling my head and harassing me, I start speaking in strange tongues. I guess I get to thinking, I should be able to swat and kill this thing. When, why, how, how is it this little thing gets to agitate and annoy me? Because, again, I figure I should be able to get rid of such a small annoyance. I can handle the small things. That's how we think. And so, therefore, the shepherd puts oil on the sheep, on the sheep's head before the insects start coming to sort of keep the insects away. And the sheep are immediately calm when they know that. They're immediately calm. They settle right down. God anoints us with the Holy Spirit to produce calm, gentle, peaceful, self-controlled people. But we must practice the presence of God to experience that. We must practice the presence of God. We must be intentional about our awareness of God's presence with us. Scripture, meditation, thinking about positive things, Take a moment and just enjoy nature. Look at pictures that bring good memories back. Listen to meaningful music. Put on some relaxing Barbara Wolfenden essential oil. She's my dealer. 
To do these things is to practice the presence of God. And yes, our cup is full. It's running over. Enough so that we can bless others. I think that's what the running over part is for. And the Lord pursues us with mercy and goodness and He will do so for all our days. His goodness and mercy will bring us to that final state of uninterrupted awareness of His blessed presence. And that is some of David's musings over Yahweh as his shepherd. And all the details of his sojourn, David knew the presence of God. He was not a flawless man. We know that full well. Scripture does not hide it. And neither are we. We all like sheep have gone astray. But now we have returned to the shepherd and bishop of our souls, Jesus. You know that one day you and I will physically hug Jesus? Here's a way to think of the presence of God. We will physically hug Him. I'm thinking that maybe He's still going to have the smell of that nard that was poured on Him. I think I'm going to feel His beard rub up against the side of my face when He plants a kiss on there. We're going to do that. that that's going to happen. That's not just like... That's not wild imagination. That's going to happen. In researching the whole shepherd motif, I came across a brief video online of a small sheep running and jumping into the shepherd's arms. And the shepherd fell down laughing. That experience is in our future. That experience is in our future. Praise be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, final thought from Keller, and we're done here. As he commented on another sheep ranch that neighbored his own. Another sheep ranch that neighbored his own. It was run by a tenant farmer, a hireling, Jesus would call him, who cares not for the sheep. A very poor shepherd. He says, quote, His stock, his sheep were always thin, weak and riddled with disease or parasites. Again and again they would come and stand at the fence, blankly looking through the woven, iron, woven wire at the green, lush pastures which my flock enjoyed. I'm sure if they could have spoken, they would have said, oh, to be set free from this awful owner. Friend, if you do not belong to Christ, you are that thin, sick, riddled with disease, parasitic sheep, spiritually speaking. You are that sheep. And you will die in that state and never know Jesus as the Good Shepherd. You miss the whole point of existence. You miss the whole point of being. So make some noise for the shepherd this morning, you. He knows where to find you. He will carry you on his shoulders into the fold, the green pastures, the quiet streams, the fearless in the face of evil, anointed reality of God's presence awaits you. Amen. Father, thank you.